0: There's one mystery I'm asked about more than any other. Spontaneous human combustion. Apparently, for no reason, people have suddenly burst into flames. Their bodies are almost totally consumed. Yet, amazingly, their surroundings are barely singed. The explanations seemed even more fantastic than the facts. And it still is a mystery. Uh, We talk about the case today and in 1951 when the incident occurred. A great deal of speculation, a great deal of uh, conjecture, Everybody has an angle, but nobody has the answer. In the bedroom of her wooden bungalow, on that fateful summer night in 1951, Mary Reesa kissed her son Richard goodbye. At 8 o'clock, I remember the landlady who uh, called me and said that there had been a terrible accident. She didn't go into details. And that I was to come right down. I was prevented from going in the room by... I believe the fire chief, who said I, that I shouldn't see what is inside. So I, I, didn't, I didn't go in. Of course, I later saw what it was, uh, what the picture was uh, from, from photographs and descriptions. She was consumed almost c- completely. Just what remained was a heel of, a, of her left foot and uh, just a piece of the skull, plus a little ash remains of her body. Everything had been consumed. The room was covered with a sort of a smoky, oily ash up to the level of about four feet completely around. Uh, but that was, that was it. The uh, bed that had been turned down was undisturbed and ready as if it were ready to, uh, to be slept in. The possibility of it being a, a spontaneous combustion uh, arose and was written. Even all we're all kinds of theories were brought out, such as even lightning that came through a, an open window. There was nothing concrete, and the fire, fire people here uh, had no explanation for it. No one had any explanation.
1: Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has
0: the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this is telling you stories of the old... Country. There was this girl... It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in the American
1: world. A
2: story behind the story. Because it's just a story.
1: Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story.
2: Each week, we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans.
1: And welcome back, all of our fantastic listeners. You're the best
2: listeners. Of all the listeners, you're my favorite. Everyone talks about how they just need a good listener sometimes, and I think to myself, I have listeners, and they're amazing, so I don't need any other listeners, and that's why I can solve all my problems all by myself, and I don't need talk therapy for the last time.
1: Yeah, that's it, Uh Uh uh-huh.
2: Uh-huh, uh-huh.
1: Mmm, that's good. So, we do want to remind everybody to go onto iTunes and leave ratings and reviews for us. And right now, we are running our exclusive, special, fantastical giveaway.
2: Our giveaway? What are we giving away? Besides our dignity. No, I'm kidding.
1: (laughs) We haven't had that in a while.
2: No! Fresh out.
1: No, uh, we are giving away a t-shirt. One of our Just A Story t-shirts to a fabulous listener that leaves us a review on itunes
2: and we've had some listeners do just that lately would you care to tell the lovely listeners about these lovely listeners
1: well we have amy Rowe smire 1972
2: or smear
1: therapy nick and stefheim 1980 that says that you're their spirit animal i've always wanted to be someone's spirit animal I feel like they should reconsider their choices in life.
2: I feel like they've made the best ones.
1: We also want to let you know that you can go on to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and follow us and talk to us and reach out. And on those, we post lots of stuff about the week's episode and also chat with our listeners. Um, You can also find out more about the show on our website, justastorypod.com.
2: And that's where you can find our lovely illustrations and our lovely, lovely sources where we found all of the information that we will be experts in for approximately up to three more hours.
1: On there, you'll also find links to our merch store.
2: Where we have t-shirts like the one we will be giving away to someone who leaves us a lovely iTunes review.
1: You have two weeks to get those in.
2: Dun, dun, dun. And then we'll draw one from the magical mystery hat. Of course. Of course.
1: Also on there, you'll find links to our Patreon page, which is a great way to help support the show.
2: There you can go and sign up to give us a recurring donation if your heart feels so moved. Uh, Consider it like the invitation at the end of a tent revival, you know, where you come down to the altar and you like talk about how much your life has changed and then they pass the plate and they look at you real mean if you don't put something in it. We're not going to look at you mean, but it will be your opportunity to testify about just how much, just a story. Has changed your life Which I'm guessing is not at all Which is probably okay
1: <laughs> On there you'll also get access to our special Just the stories episodes Where we look at fun mysteries Going straight to the source Our primary sources The newspapers and writings of the time
2: And then we argue about what we think happened For just a bit And it's fun bickering
1: Not like marriage bickering
2: No it's not like grocery store list bickering
1: That we don't record We should No <laughs>
2: Some people who have gone and shown love on Patreon this month are Amelia Griswold, Three Fox, and Jennifer Unningham, who I'm guessing is Jennifer Cunningham. I'm giving you a C. Actually I'm giving you an A plus, but you can also have a C for your name if you need one.
1: But I do want to mention, you know, someone said on Instagram the other day, you know, like, oh, I want to help support y'all's show and but you know, I can't afford to do Patreon, and we like a thousand percent understand that because Dude We just finished school.
2: Dude, we totally understand that.
1: (laughs) But there are other ways to support us, like leaving ratings and reviews, telling your friends. Preach the gospel. Get out
2: there and evangelize.
1: Post about it on social media, any which way you can. You know, everything is appreciated.
2: Any which way but loose. Get your orangutan on board. It's all fun.
1: Another way you can reach out to us is the Urban Legend Hotline.
2: That's true. You can call the number 512-222-3375 and tell us all about your deepest, darkest secrets or, you know, an urban legend, whatevs. But yeah, I wanted to say that we had a realization the other day that we could finally afford to give money to NPR and we were both so excited.
1: It's true. We are sustaining members of KUT and KUTX in Austin. (laughs) Waiting on my t-shirt.
2: So yeah, we get it, but please engage. We're happy to have you all around.
1: So, Sam. So, Jacob. Today, the burning story at hand.
2: No, really? You heard me. Okay. What is it? Tell me Tell me what it is.
1: Well, today we're kind of starting with a realish story. I like that ish. I'm into the ish. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've mentioned before in the show how much we loved growing up. All of those kind of paranormal sciency shows that I'll re aired on history channel and
2: the discovery channel
1: late at night.
2: Yes. I was very into Arthur C. Clarke. I cannot even remember the title of the show. I just remember Arthur C. Clarke. He came on around 1 a.m. And I would sneak and stay up to watch it. And I know it was 1 a.m. Cause at 2 a.m. Infomercials started airing. So I would usually catch the first 15 minutes of the Ginsu knives or whatever too, before I fell asleep.
1: Well, so on these shows and Unsolved Mysteries and In Search Of and all this great stuff, they'd always have stories in between the alien abductions and the telepathy and the messages from the dead.
2: All the fun things. Chupacabra.
1: About... Spontaneous combustion
2: Spontaneous human
1: combustion Yes
2: Very specifically Has to be human or it's really not that interesting
1: Unless it's a chupacabra
2: Oily rags though Oily rags don't make for good TV
1: So one of the most classic Spontaneous combustion stories Is Miss Mary Reeser And so this occurred in 1951 She was a 67 year old widow Who was at home in St. Petersburg, Florida
2: Well, she was in Florida So
1: I guess anything's possible florida woman
2: ooh, and she doesn't get as many headlines as florida man florida man is like should be a cryptid
1: so on july 1st 1951 she was last seen by her son dr Reza, and her landlady who had left her sitting in her easy chair smoking a cigarette that doesn't sound at all suspect so the landlady was woken at 5 a.m by smoke Now she thought it was an overheating pump and went and turned it off went back to bed and in the morning she signed for a telegram for Miss Reeser now she went to deliver it and found the doorknob to be hot
2: interesting
1: she got two people to help her break the door down and what they found has gone down in history what is it what they found was not much because the chair that Miss Reeser had been sitting in had been turned to ash with only a few coils left.
2: Like the springs in the seat, you mean? Like yeah. that okay.
1: And she had also been turned to ash with only her foot left with a slipper still on. And not burned. Not burned.
2: She made a gypsy so angry. (gasps) Clearly, this is the only thing that makes sense is a gypsy curse. It's
1: possible because it was some really odd circumstances because the rest of the house was not burned.
2: Well, that slipper wasn't even burned.
1: Only a circle of scorched earth around the chair.
2: So that was like the only damage to the apartment.
1: Well, there was some heat damage above a four foot level, but below it, there was no other damage outside of the circle around the chair.
2: So, what you're saying is it was clearly a gypsy who was around four feet tall that cast the curse. Maybe so. I've seen that movie with Donald Sutherland. I know it's
1: up. So, police investigated trying to determine what caused this burn. It wasn't an electrical malfunction. There was no accelerant on the carpet. There'd been no storms or lightning at the time.
2: Wait, so her bones were gone too. Everything's gone except the foot in the slipper.
1: And a few charred, barely recognizable remains. Okay. So she's just gone. Right. So Korgman, an anthropologist that really looked into this, said, I cannot conceive such complete cremation without more burning in the apartment. I've been present at tests of body and bone reaction to extreme heat, and it has been established that a heat of 3,000 degrees is necessary to completely consume the bones, as happened in the Reeser case. Now he also stated, it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. As I review it, the short hairs on my neck bristle with vague fear. Were I living in the Middle Ages, I'd mutter something about black magic. You muttered it now, dude. You mu- you muttered
2: it and somebody wrote it down, or you did. That's more than muttering.
1: Well, so, everyone was concerned that this was a case of spontaneous human combustion.
2: Well, I mean, let's go through the case again real, real quick. Let's No damage outside the circle. True. Heat damage above four feet. Yes. No accelerant.
1: None found, although it could have been burned off.
2: No... F- like fireplace burning a cozy... No chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Nope. Uh, no lightning.
1: No storms in the area.
2: No electrical malfunction.
1: None found. Only one burned fuse and it was not related to where she was. Yep. Magic. Or spontaneous combustion.
2: Spontaneous combustion is magic.
1: Well, that depends on who you ask. And that has changed over time. So the definition of spontaneous human combustion is when a person burst into flames without an external heat source. And there's a flame from within. The victim is almost completely consumed, but often only leaving the limbs. Sometimes people note a sweet, smoky smell. And the room shows little fire damage other than the area the person was in and just some greasy residue.
2: Ew. Who's saying it smells sweet? That guy we need to look out for.
1: There needs to be a registry.
2: (laughs) But clearly... There is an accelerant if you count the angry gypsy that put a curse on her.
1: Well, you know, that what did get me thinking. Is why was this sort of incident always on these kind of paranormal, supernatural shows? I mean, if it's just a person that's catching fire even from within, why is it supernatural?
2: Um, Excuse me. I want that to be supernatural. I want that to be outside the realm of the ordinary possibility. Very much. I I want that to be on those shows. Well, it is
1: a rare occurrence.
2: But, I mean, if you're catching fire without an accelerant just because you ate a potato wrong, you get to be on Arthur C. Clarke, Leonard Nimoy, Robert Stack-style programming.
1: Well, it is a more modern idea that this is of supernatural cause. So, in 1976, Michael Harrison wrote Fire from Heaven, and reframed many of the stories of spontaneous combustion as of supernatural causes. He tried to tie them to things like telepathy, auras, people with unusually strong magnetic fields, geography, ritual dancing.
2: Hey, you remember Greg? Who's that? Greg, the kindly Native American man who led- The spirit? Yeah, that one. I think Greg was fucking with this guy. (laughs) (laughs)
1: It was was the 70s, who knows what this guy was on
2: All of it, clearly, all of it Okay, so So it was one of or all of These things that are kind of fancy That nobody does much in their everyday life
1: Well, so This book that really took it into That level Was Larry Arnold's book A Blaze The Mysterious Fires of Spontaneous Human Combustion
2: He sounds like a scholar does he cite his sources, Jacob? Well, some. Does he?
1: Not well. Okay. Well, so if you were to pick up this book at your local bookstore...
2: Half-price books. Like, it's totally... It's totally there. Like, if we'd gone, we would find seven copies of it.
1: Probably so. In the clearance bin. So, on the desk jacket blurb, it states that the author redirected a background in mechanical and electrical engineering to explore the unconventional.
2: That's not... That's not a word that gets that voice effect. I don't think he knows that. I think he thinks it does.
1: It does in this case.
2: We explore the unconventional. I feel no need to put a wah pedal on
1: it. I feel the need to put a wah pedal on everything.
2: You're not invited to the rest of this podcast unless you change that policy. But I mean, a guy leaving what, electrical and mechanical engineering you yeah. said, to explore strange phenomena. I can respect that. That's pretty cool. Right? Like, I mean, at least he has some background on the subject.
1: Well, in reality, he's a Pennsylvania school bus driver.
2: That's technically mechanical engineering in the sense that trains have engineers that drive them.
1: Right. Well, I mean, of course, there's nothing wrong with being a bus driver, but he is definitely padding the resume a little bit. He's miscrediting himself hard. So he put out some amazing theories in this book. And there are three main ones. Now, one is related to a new subatomic pyrotron theory.
2: I assume this is, like, day three of Pennsylvania Bus Driver Academy that you get the con or pronatons.
1: Well, no, it's the uh, quantum physics lectures you get. Right. I don't understand quantum physics, barely. But he did. I don't. And he stated that there's this very tiny... Highly powered particle, like a neutrino, that zips through the spaces between the quarks that make up atoms.
2: That's right. That sounds right. Well, not the zipping, but the quarks.
1: Well, quarks are real. And they make up atoms. But not the pyrotron particles going through them. And that, on rare occasions, a rogue particle has a direct hit with a quark and sets off an internal chain reaction. And he says, I've dubbed this occurrence the internal... Hiroshima effect, which may result in spontaneous human combustion.
2: How do you think he decided between Hiroshima and Nagasaki? How many days do you think that was of him sitting there staring at his note cards with both names on them, trying to decide which one rolled off the tongue more easily? Okay, Pyrotonokon.
1: Pyrotron. The Pyrotron. Pyrotron.
2: Pyrotron. Okay, that is not a thing.
1: It's not a thing.
2: Okay, just making sure, because <laughs> clearly I am sciency. You see how sciency I am. But
1: we'll talk about the possible origins for all these theories.
2: Okay, so who thinks that he got an Atari and had that game where you have to shoot the little what's it called, Space Invaders? Is that what it is? Where yeah. you are like and he's like, this is just like atoms, and when you shoot it, magically you explode, just like on TV.
1: No, I think he tried to read something about quantum physics. And this is what he got out of it,
2: or he just flipped through the glossary to find words that made it sound real, which is totally what I would do.
1: <laughs> so another theory he puts forward is Kundalini, and this is an this is a real thing.
2: Is it an ancient Chinese secret?
1: <laughs> kind of. It is a like it is a, a Buddhist teaching. Oh, okay. But I'm gonna give you his description of it.
2: Oh, okay. I bet it's very culturally sensitive, I just like just right. the internal hiroshima effect or whatever he came up with
1: so it's an energy that flows up and down the spinal column of every living human being although kundalini is well known to eastern physicians and metaphysicians i want to be a metaphysician
2: just when you say doctor heal thyself
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's less so in the western world kundalini is a very powerful bioenergy that among other psychokinetic phenomena can produce intense internal temperature spikes when out of balance.
2: So it's like not having your chakras in order.
1: Kind of.
2: Okay, so we all have a kundalini line.
1: It flows up and down the spinal column.
2: We all have a kundalini flow.
1: Every living human being.
2: Okay, and if it gets out of kilter, if you're, to borrow a phrase from my father, if your gig line's crooked, you um you explode.
1: Well, he says it could be like a quasi-plasma-like ball that seems to originate in the abdominal region. Mm. Strangely, whatever lies anatomically beyond the radius of that ball of energy usually escapes incineration.
2: So like the feet.
1: Yes, from what I have observed, the radius of the sphere is normally about a foot to a foot and a half.
2: What have you observed, Larry Arnold? you observed things. Okay. If
1: there was YouTube, I would say that was the reason.
2: There wasn't, though.
1: No. Which means that the victim's extremities are often left unburned, but their torso is reduced to ash.
2: They can't hear me face palming. That seems like something that shouldn't be so rare. Like, let's just suspend disbelief for a moment and go on this journey with Larry. Come on in the magic school bus. Let's go. We all have it. We all have a kundalini flow. And if it gets out of kilter, it can turn into a ball of plasma and consume everything except our limbs. And yet it happens to like one in a billion people or less.
1: Or less. So he has another another theory, another theory of why this could be. And so... It has to do with ley lines. Was, oh god. Okay. Can you can you explain what a ley line is in like a sentence?
2: Ley lines are invisible lines that crisscross the globe, and along these lines there are concentrated amounts of paranormal activity because of geomagnetic forces at all. And thankfully, the ancients knew of these lines and erected monuments on points Where they intersect. Of course they do. So many monuments can be found along Ley Lines, along with some natural landmarks, such as Enchanted Rock. It's a fabulous place you should visit. It's here in Texas. And lots of magic and ghosts happen on the Ley Lines.
1: It's also
2: kind of made up.
1: Well... But fun. It's fun. (laughs) So he claims that he... Has tracked down several cases of spontaneous combustion that fall on these ley line patterns.
2: On the the ley lines, like with the monuments, or is this a separate infrastructure?
1: Well, they're on those ley lines, but these are specifically what he calls fire lines.
2: Are there people who explode into water, air, and earth on the other?
1: <laughs> it's his next Elementals? book. Elementals. This is his next book. Okay. One is 400 miles long and runs through five towns where ten mysterious blazes, so it includes other fires too, had occurred.
2: So it doesn't have to be just a person, it can also be a home.
1: It's very unconventional. I
2: have one thing to say to Larry Arnold. What's that? It's getting hot in here. No,
1: no. So, he does state that at this point, I have nothing I can take into a scientific laboratory and reproduce under controlled conditions.
2: No fooling. You don't say, Larry. And here, I thought you were sciencing. But you're telling me this isn't peer-reviewed? You're telling me a blaze is not peer-reviewed?
1: Sorry. At least he admits it.
2: But you know what? The scientific community has failed me because if they had merely taken his book and examined it and verified everything he said, then we would know. But they have standards. This is why
1: we need more scientific funding.
2: Oh, this is? Yes. Just this. If
1: this gets it, I'm fine with it.
2: (laughs) Somebody tell Trump we need to investigate this.
1: But one other point I want to make about his book, because we're going to get back to it, is that he says that the cases tend to peak every 32 years. And this could be related to solar activity or geophysical factors.
2: That's highly not specific.
1: Of course it isn't. Ugh. But the idea of these spontaneous human combustions and spontaneous fires occurring have been around for centuries and centuries.
2: They definitely have. So it's not always, like, someone alone in a room who smolders for hours and i'm not talking about a male model making cute faces in the mirror no no i'm talking about like the cases that have been recorded as spontaneous human combustion they can be a little different such as in this very early example from the 15th century now according to legend there was an italian knight named Polonus Vorstius who burned to death after vomiting fire apparently he had drunk two ladles of wine which was believed to have ignited the spontaneous combustion in his body.
1: I felt like I vomited fire after drinking that much.
2: That was tequila. So our friend Larry did record this incident as one of his samples in his book.
1: Oh, he's such a good historian.
2: He is. And he says, sometimes during the reign of Queen bon- Bonas Farza in Milan, Italy, a knight by the name of Polonus. Vorstius consumed two ladles of strong wine and vomited fire and then was consumed by flames. This is according to a report made by his parents, Mr. and Mrs. Ibrahim Vorstius. So this was peer reviewed.
1: I'm glad they were using those titles. In the-
2: <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. I know. I'm not sure that's true. But another researcher looked into this and they report in 1654, Thomas Bartholin, a Danish. Physician, mathematician, and theologian.
1: Hey, do you want to know a fun fact about him? Bartholin? You ever heard of the Bartholin gland? No. What's it? It lubricates lady parts.
2: No! (laughs) No! Is it really named after him? Yeah. I feel like very scandalized and I don't know why.
1: Why do you know that? Because I went to medical school. They tell
2: you those things
1: there? I know the names. I put two and two together.
2: Terrible. They're talking dirty at medical school. But he wrote that during the reign of Queen Bonaswarza from 1468 to 1503, a Polish knight who had drunk two glasses of brandy died after flames erupted from his mouth. Bartholin was told the story by Adolphus Vorstius, a noted physician and botanist at the time, who, in turn, said he got the story from his father, who may have had a parchment about the incident.
1: So that's where the name comes from.
2: Vorstius is the man's name who recounted the story to the danish physician now you can see here an early version of an urban legend
1: <laughs> a little telephone game <laughs> a little te- changes right
2: but the wor- polonis is uh, polish polish
1: polish yes. polish so, night yes nice
2: so that got a little mixed up and twisted around ways but anyway fire vomit
1: all right i'm excited more
2: more it's catholic bell time
1: wait was i supposed to have something here
2: no i have it what i have catholic bell fodder for you oh god i did it it doesn't work that way i found things it won't
1: record
2: <laughs> it's all gonna be backwards <laughs> like, I Satan. <laughs> i have an account for you of the ecstasies of the venerable ursula Biancasa. Who is the foundress of the Theontine nuns. Now her ecstasies were so frequent, and they were almost uninterrupted. Directly the trance came on, and at once she became entirely insensible to any exterior happenings. When she was a child, these ecstasies were not understood, and rough methods were employed to arouse her. She was pricked with needles and even cut with sharp lancets. Her hair was pulled. Bystanders nipped and pinched her black and blue. They bruised her with their blows. They even went so far as to burn her with a naked flame. All these injuries affected her not in the slightest. Although she returned to herself, she keenly felt the result of such ill-judged and indeed cruel maltreatment. Later, ignorance and misunderstanding turned to admiration and awe. Those who dwelt with her had opportunities of observing her almost daily and realized that she was indeed a saint.
1: Or epileptic.
2: Spoiled fun. Fine. So this is an introduction to kind of her early life. She's being poked and prodded as we rejoin her now. She was a Neapolitan nun and hermitess. And she was very concerned with purgatory and soul suffering there. And she founded the order of Theatine nuns and the Theatine hermitesses, which apparently is like when you level up on nunning at this time in Naples. So a lot of this writing comes from a book called Physical Phenomena of Mysticism by Herbert Thurston it was written around 1954. Way too much fun. Sounds good. <laughs> it is really good. It's also on Google
1: Books. Didn't read that in Catholic school.
2: So where does the fire come in, you may ask? Where does it come in? So once her hands started feeling as if they were burning, she started having like a, a lot of pain. They were very, very painful inside out. And so they brought her a bowl of cold water. And when she put her hands in the cold water, it actually began to boil and steam started coming from it. What? Miracle. Right. Whilst the vessel itself became so hot that it was hardly possible to hold it. This phenomena was witnessed by so many as to be beyond any question, says Novissima Super Vertubis, or the official beatification process documents. Her case was, quote, treated with merciless severity, and even brutally handled by her antagonists and detractors, who were high-placed and powerful. Throughout the long period of incredibly harsh testing, she was openly assailed as an imposter. She was a witch. Yes. Yes. People were like, she's totally a witch. And there were rumors that she was going to be burned at the stake. But throughout this process, she was able to withstand incredible amounts of pain, and there was also this heat thing with the steam and the boiling and the burning. And a lot of people kind of speculated that this might have been a form of stigmata.
1: Oh, so that's whenever people usually with stigmata get the wounds of Christ's crucifixion and it's holy because they get to kind of take part in Christ's suffering.
2: Right, and better understand him and appreciate what he did for humanity. That whole thing. But she was eventually made venerable and her order still exists and they still wear the same scapula that she designed. And then there's another story of a woman named Palma mattarelli who lived from 1825 to 1888 and she was examined by a doctor named inbert gobier in 1871 and he recorded two incidents in which second degree burns seemed to appear spontaneously on her skin when her clothing was removed which how he knows that it happened what were they doing and he was testing her for medical of course medical reason and then there was also an episode, a couple of episodes, in which they would bring linen to her when she started having like these, the vapors, I guess, is the closest thing, you could, ecstasies. She was having ecstasies. They would bring her linen and she would place it against her breast and she took the linen away. It would have burn marks in the linen.
1: It's like toast with the face of Jesus. Right.
2: But it would have pious symbols like, right. but it was usually somehow kind of like fire adjacent fire related And even at the time, even back in 1871, Dr. Gubier says, might have been a plant, may have been a lying nun, can't tell for sure. She wouldn't let me see her skin before she said the burns appeared.
1: Uh, She was too pious. She was too pious. There were never any lying nuns back in the day. That's ridiculous. No.
2: That's poppycock.
1: See several episodes.
2: (laughs) And so let's get forward a little bit in time to 1929. And go to the paper of record.
1: The New York Times. That's
2: the one. And talk about the goddess of fire who frightens the natives on the island of Antigua.
1: Oh, they made this up. (laughs)
2: Local color. St. John's Antigua Island. West Indies. The natives here, filled with superstition, are apprehensive of a disastrous earthquake or fire because of the appearance of in village of a young woman who is called the goddess of fire. Whenever she walks the highway, say the natives, her clothing catches fire and burns to ashes. While she is in bed, the same thing happens, and not even the smell of smoke is left on the sheet. The young woman, known as Lily White, has lost all of her clothing. And very soon after the neighbors have supplied other dresses, a new garb has been destroyed by fire. I can't believe
1: this isn't more derogatory.
2: White folks sent an explanation in the constant supply of new dresses.
1: Ah, they think she was doing it to get clothes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Good reporting. So let's turn now to a man in Pawpaw.
1: Pawpaw, Michigan?
2: That's the one, and I don't know how you knew that. So round's about 1882. There's a strange happening in Pawpaw. And it gets written up, supposedly. This is the thing I found first in a newspaper. A.W. Underwood. What can we write here that will comfort the troubled wraith of the late A.W. Underwood, who is marked by the most repellent of social blemishes, worse than halitosis or chronic flatulence.
1: This is colorful.
2: Isn't it? An innate compulsion to set afire anything he breathed upon. The 24-year-old native of Pawpaw, Michigan, Underwood, was examined by Dr. L.C. Woodman, who published his findings in the Michigan Medical News. Underwood will take a, anybody's cotton handkerchief, hold it tightly against his mouth, while breathing through it, the doctor wrote. After a few seconds, it bursts into flames. He will undress completely, rinse out his mouth thoroughly, and submit to the most rigorous examination to preclude the possibility of any humbug. He can collect dry leaves and start a fire by breathing on them. So I found this, and I found it amusing. And I said to myself, I says to myself, I says, I says, bullshit.
1: I says bullshit,
2: too. I says bullshit, but then I Googled, went down the magic Google rabbit hole, and I found the Michigan Medical News from 1882, and it's in it. Science. (laughs) Science. So, L.C. Woodman... Does write I have a singular phenomenon in the shape of a young man living here I have studied with much interest And I am satisfied that his peculiar power Demonstrates that electricity Is the nerve force beyond dispute His name is William Underwood He's age 27 years old And his gift of generating fire Through the medium of his breath Assisted by manipulation with his hands
1: So he's taking just people's Handkerchiefs And lighting them on fire with only his breath
2: "'Yes, but he does stipulate. "'It is impossible to persuade him to do it more than twice a day, "'and the effort is attendant with the most extreme exhaustion. "'He will sink into a chair after doing it, "'and on one occasion after he'd set a newspaper on fire as narrated. "'I placed my hand on his head and discovered his scalp was violently twitching, "'as if under intense excitement. "'He will do it any time, no matter where he is, under any circumstances.' I have repeatedly known him, setting back at the dinner table to take a swallow of water and by blowing on his napkin at once, set it on fire. He is ignorant and says his first discovered his strange power by inhaling and exhaling on a perfumed handkerchief that suddenly burned while in his hands. This is certainly no humbug, but what is it? Does physiology give an instance like this? And if so, when?
1: This time, maybe? (laughs) But never again?
2: I think it's interesting that he's, like, swallowing water before he does it.
1: Right? It's water.
2: Wait, what do you mean it's Oh, you mean it's not water? You mean it's fire water?
1: Yes, I'm being sarcastic.
2: I thought you were being medical. Nope. (laughs) So hard to tell the voices are the same.
1: (laughs) So he sounds like some sort of, like, carnival act.
2: Well, he absolutely does. But for good measure, we should probably take a look at a real carnival act. Around the Gilded Age, there was a woman performing in England, Signora Josephine Giardelli, and she was known as the original salamander. And she claimed to be born in Italy, and she did a fireproof act, which, for those of you schooled in Kearney tradition, you know that this is the act of exposing yourself to flames of all sort, manner, sizes, and shapes, and not dying. That's key. That's key. So her act... Included passing heated irons over her legs, standing on a hot iron barefooted, running a hot iron over her tongue and over her hair, which we all know that you can run hot irons over your hair now, but I guess back then it was magic. We'd all be a hit. She washes her hands in boiling oil and then places it in her mouth. She holds melted lead on her fingers and puts melted lead in her mouth and then spits it back out and shows teeth impressions on it, you know, because it's hardened, which... Great effect. Good showmanship there. And passes her arm over lit candles and through flames. And she's one of the first fireproof acts to be on popular display. And she, supposedly she performed for all kinds of royals and went to all the best dinners. was just the toast of the town. That is her claim to fame. The original salamander.
1: And so is she called the salamander because of its mythical properties?
2: Oh, yes. And you know we're going to talk about the salamander now. <laughs> I learned this a couple of years ago. When I started reading tarot cards. I had never heard it before. Really? Really. I had no idea. But the wands are associated with fire. And all of the face cards in that suit have salamanders on them. And I was like, what has a salamander got to do with fire? Apparently everything.
1: I thought this was pretty well known. I thought you were pretty well known. That's right I am. God.
2: So there was this massive association between salamanders and fires and that's because salamanders commonly nest under logs so when you have a wood pile salamanders are like apartments that's a
1: good home it's it could be nice and muddy moist Mm-hmm.
2: and so they go into the logs and when people come and they're like i am cold not an apartment this is not housing this is in fact fire fuel Watch now as I make it fire fuel. The salamanders are like holy shit! Fire! Get out! No, honey, we don't have time to pack. It's time to go. And they call the salamander fire departments, and they all come running. And we're all very thankful to Ben Franklin for inventing
1: fire departments. Samantha, you're just making shit up.
2: (laughs) Benjamin Franklin didn't invent fire departments.
1: The rest of
2: it. Oh, that's yeah. That's all fiction. It might happen. We don't know.
1: But they would be seen coming out of logs that were put on fires, and it looked like they were coming out of the the fire. fire.
2: So, when salamanders get spooked, they do emit like a milky substance kind of
1: all over them, kind of a slime. Or like a protective mucus cover.
2: But it was thought back in the day that this made them fireproof. Clearly, the milky substance that comes out of the salamander when you scare the shit out of it is magic. Of course has reasons and so these are very mysterious and magical creatures and the european salamander is bright yellow and bright black like the one that's most commonly found in logs and you can imagine that that is a striking color pattern it emerges from the flames
1: it's fire colored
2: leonardo da vinci had his own opinions of salamanders he wrote this has no digestive organs and gets no food but from the fire in which it constantly renews its scaly skin the salamander, which res- news its scaly skin in the fire for virtue.
1: None of that is right. <laughs> Sorry.
2: He's right about so many other things. But I mean,
1: it doesn't even have
2: scales. Swing and a miss, okay? Swing and a miss. But Francis I of France adopted the badge of the salamander as his coat of arms. And the legend read, I nourish and extinguish. And it was taken from the Italian motto, which came slightly before it. Which was, I nourish the good and extinguish the bad. Which is a reference to fire and how it purifies by destruction.
1: Yeah, like with a forest fire. It was also an alchemal idea, too. So in alchemy, they thought it would get the impurities out of things. Like metals. Like witches. That, too.
2: <laughs>
1: and people claimed to be able to produce clothing that was
2: fireproof by harvesting... Wait... Like guess, guess what? Guess
1: the scales of a salamander.
2: Salamander wool.
1: Oh, they don't have scales. Are wool people? <laughs> but you know the interesting thing about that is that no one came forward after using it, saying it didn't work. No dissatisfied customers Hello? still alive.
2: Hello, I'm Chris. Crispy. No, the glo- I'd like my money back, please.
1: <laughs> the glove you sold me did not work. By the way, how does one shear a salamander?
2: <laughs> Not only was the salamander fireproof, it was apparently also quite toxic. And we know this because in the 13th century, Glanville, an English writer, was good enough to give us these facts. Who <laughs> oh good. He declared that 4,000 of Alexander the Great's men and 2,000 of their horses were killed after drinking from a stream that had been infected by a single salamander falling in.
1: Mm, so before Pasteur came around...
2: No, there's nothing else. Just the salamander.
1: <laughs> no germ theory.
2: No germ theory. Just a salamander. <laughs> just one.
1: Sneaky bastard.
2: Sneaky bastard.
1: You burned my home. <laughs> I shit no stream.
2: This is for Marv! Cannonball! <laughs> it was more like... Pew. Okay. So we were able to see through our lens fixed cleanly on the salamander who i hope will you know get that small business loan he wants and go on to live a happy and fulfilling life the fire has a lot of complex symbolism it's untouchable it can be very damaging but it's also cleansing and a sign of strength and we get this kind of full circle of life represented by the coming of fire we get destruction but also rebirth it replenishes the soil gives us a second chance. It makes things stronger. It
1: forges things. Yeah, I mean, like in Christianity, you get the ideas of hell, but then you also have the flames of the Holy Spirit.
2: Right. It's a very interesting duality that is represented by fire. So as long as we're talking about the the symbols and the feeling of fire and the way that people have always related to it, I think I want to tell you a story.
1: Story time.
2: Story time. So this story is called The Daughter of the Sun, and it is mainly found in italy and algeria and it's a traditional folk tale and so i'm going to tell it from memory and we're just going to call it a uh, an evolution if i get some things wrong so once upon a time there was a princess and it was prophesied to her father the king that she would become pregnant with this child of the sun before her 16th birthday and the king knew that this would be scandalous he did not want his daughter having a child out of wedlock And everyone knew you could not marry the sun, So he sent her far away, deep in the forest, to live in a tower.
1: Always with the tower.
2: But this time, there was a twist. Instead of being at the very top of a tower, she was at the very bottom.
1: Easy escape. Nah. Unless there are no doors.
2: There are no doors. Clearly, they built it around her. There was only one window. High, high up at the top, so high that the sunlight could never touch her. She lived there with her nursemaid and the daughter of her nursemaid. And one day, around the time she was 15, the nurse had to leave for a moment. And the two girls became very curious about the outside world. And so they stacked all of the furniture up until they could see out of the window. And as they were peering out the tower window, looking across the vast lands that belonged to the girl's father, she felt the sun touch her face for the first time and got pregnant. I hate when that happens. Yeah, me too. Now, the nursemaid knew what the king would say to her if he found out that his daughter, despite the tower theatrics and all of his planning and parenting-ish, had gotten knocked up by the son anyway, he would say to her,
1: you had one job. You had one job. One thing to do. One job. No son. No son. No son. No baby. None.
2: So, she said, he's going to be really pissed about this. Best not to let him know Since he never comes out here to see us anyway Because he's, you know, father of the frickin' year I'll just collect the baby when it's born And go leave it in the forest Because that's better
1: They always do that What else always happens? If you leave a baby in the forest Something raises it (laughs) Either an animal Mm -hmm. And it becomes a feral child Or a kindly old woman slash couple That can take care of them And then they can live to (laughs) fulfill the curse.
2: Well, this one has a door number three. She's found in the woods by uh, the king of a neighboring land. Oh, of course. Yeah. And so she's brought into the home and raised with his son, the prince.
1: So the daughter is found, brought into the home.
2: Right. And this is the daughter of the princess and the son. So she's the daughter of the son. Now... When you have a beautiful young girl and a beautiful young boy at the beginning of a fairy tale, and they grow up together, what happens?
1: It's like if you have a gun in the first act.
2: Yes, it is. They must fall in love.
1: They must get off. Go off.
2: What? Stop it. Dirty. Dirty. Go back to medical school and talk about your dirty things, okay? Your dirty, dirty jokes. So, the prince and the daughter of the sun fall in love. But as we have observed... Kings are not so much on their progeny marrying people without titles and or raising children out of wedlock. Very repressed, the society. And so even though they're in love, the king says, no, 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 that won't do. And what happens next? Because it's a fairy tale.
1: He sends her away to a tower, another one, or a cottage.
2: Cottage. It's definitely a cottage. No more towers. All out. Didn't work anyway. Onto the cottage. So the daughter of the sun is shipped off to a cottage, and we have to have the classic fairy tale roundup for all the eligible brides, and one is assigned to the prince, and they are to be married. And the prince is very sad, but he knows that his father is wise, and he's going to go along with it because of duty and honor and things. And so, the dad's like, I'm not a complete asshole... I know that girl's your friend and whatever and I raised her like my own child for so many years, probably 14 but we don't want to think about that. And so he sends his knights out into the forest to go to the cottage and find the daughter of the sun and invite her to his son's wedding. And they all go to the wedding and before it starts she's looking around and she sees that everyone else has brought a gift. And she says, Oh shit, I knew I forgot something. And she's like, this won't do. And so she's rolls over to a roaring fireplace at the center of the room and sticks both of her hands in the fire and she pulls them out and the tips of her fingers have turned to candle wicks and she dances and she turns and twists her hands and little flames dance and she dances and it's charming and beguiling and this is their gift and the bride-to-be says well (laughs) if she can do that i can do that she's not so special And she trots over to the fireplace and sticks both of her hands in and screams bloody murder and falls down on the floor. and Hot mess. Hot mess original sense.
1: The daughter of the sun should have brought her salamander gloves.
2: She instead brought her tiny little shears. (laughs) Because you can either give a man a fish...
1: Or teach him how to collect wool from a salamander.
2: (laughs) Let's move on. Obviously the wedding has to be canceled because this girl has humiliated herself... And this just won't do.
1: So let me guess. He sends her back to the cottage. Yep. And rounds up all the ladies. Yep. Make sure their Bartholian glands are working.
2: You have to stop with that.
1: <laughs> and picks another one for the her, to marry the prince.
2: Yes. So the prince has a new lady. And they're going to get married. And then he's like, well, gonna invite her again because plot. She comes. Shit. I forgot it again, she says. I forgot to bring a gift. And so this time she goes and she steps into the fireplace and steps out. And she's wearing this beautiful cloak with all of the colors of the sunset on it. And she takes it off and she gives it to them as a wedding gift. And because reasons, girl number two is like,
1: I can do that. She obviously was not at the first wedding.
2: No, obviously not. Obviously wasn't chosen for her brains either. And she steps into the fire and alas, it was not a salamander cloak.
1: Unfortunate.
2: So she's done. Out. She's fired.
1: this is a fairy tale. You know. We've got to get it three times. Three. What happens now? Same. What's this one do?
2: (laughs) So she walks in. Oh, shit. I forgot my gift. This time.
1: I'm starting to think this was a plan. (laughs)
2: She's a pretty crafty lady. But this time she doesn't go for the fire. This time, she cuts her ear off. Good plan. Like Van Gogh. And from her head, she pulls a beautiful golden veil. And she presents it to the girl and replaces her ear and goes on her merry way. And naturally, Brainiac number three says, That's not so great. I can do it too. And proceeds to cut her ear off. Blood everywhere, huge mess. She's gone too. So after the daughter of the sun is shuffled back to her cottage...
1: The forest must just be filled with cottages and towers everywhere.
2: It's like boarding school. But you're not allowed to make
1: friends. I'm not here to make friends.
2: I think we need to throw her under Larry Arnold's bus anyway.
1: All right, so these three girls were fired.
2: Yes. And she is back in her cottage. And she is... There one day, and they come to tell her that the prince is sick with grief. Princes are always sick with grief. And that she needs to come and cheer him up. And she says, first I will make soup. And so she makes soup. And she brings the soup with her. And she goes to the prince, and she feeds him a spoonful of the soup. And apparently, she's a pretty shitty cook.
1: (laughs) Great at fire tricks, Bad at cooking.
2: Whatever. Take what you can get. God doesn't give with both hands. And so the prince spits the soup out and says, this is disgusting. I don't want any of this soup. And she says, how dare you speak to me that way? I am the daughter of the sun. And so the king is like, oh, I know who you are. You're royal as fuck. Awesome. You can totally marry my son now and live happily ever after and whatnot.
1: And once again, domestic abuse. Leads to domestic bliss? <laughs> no. What's the moral?
2: The moral is that she is fireproof. Don't
1: forget your wedding gift. <laughs> Marry someone with an IQ greater than a salamander.
2: The moral is that women's place is wherever they want it to be, not just in the kitchen, because the Italians and the Algerians were incredibly progressive and they were on to this years before. Lean in, motherfuckers. I know it's not. That's true. It's not. It's
1: not the. Mo- so, to get away from our folk tales...
2: Wait, you don't think this solves it? You don't think this unravels the mysteries of spontaneous human combustion? You don't think this has something to say about why people explode? No. Then what was the point? You tell me! I don't know! They all lived happily ever after. We don't get to end that way very often. It's just a story, Jacob.
1: Well, so...
2: Are you going to make me science now?
1: Oh, but it's... It's old science. Oh, that's that's also often just a story. <laughs> so, scientists have been looking at these ideas of spontaneous combustion for centuries. So in 1667, a man named Johann Joachim Becher proposed the idea that there existed a basic element that caused combustion. Okay. And this was called phlogiston. And it okay. was released when an object burned. So the more phlogiston an object had, the faster and more fierce it would combust.:
2: Combustibility is like a thing that we use.: But it's to... not
1: caused by phlogiston
2: Well maybe we change the name. No. In defense of science.:
1: So he also believed that the purpose of respiration in living beings was to exhale out phlogiston and, hey, what happens to the stuff we exhale?
2: It feeds the plants.
1: What burns really well? Plants. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. So it's real. Oh. No, it's not. <laughs> That's it. That's the reasoning. And he also proposed that there could be a medical condition that allowed phlogiston to remain and build up within a living body. Oh, my God. This
2: is like the humors. He's basically proposing a new humor.
1: He was trying to replace the old idea of the elements that the Greeks used, that everything was made of earth, fire, water. So he thought that substances that burned in air were said to be rich in phlogiston, and that combustion stopped was whenever all the phlogiston was burned up, and that air absorbed it, and then plants... Absorbed it and that's why they burned so well.
2: This sounds like something Remy would come in and tell us, like, Mom, Mom, I know why wood burns.
1: <laughs> exactly. Now of course later they found um oxygen, which was used to explain combustion and, and rust and you know life. Oxidation, which yeah. is what combustion is. Yeah. And this was, you know, thrown out the window, although lots and lots of people tried to, to keep it around.
2: Is it like the flat earth?
1: No, no. It was whenever they were still kind of just determining just basic chemistry and basics of elements, and people are like, "No, no, no." But wait, wait, wait. It's I see what related. you have
2: here. I see that you've mentioned oxygen, but you've you've completely neglected to to include flogiston. In Don't your forget the flogustin. calculations here.
1: So you know, maybe this is the idea of the subatomic pyrotron <laughs> particle that Arnold is talking about. Who knows?
2: know that he was talking about anything. I think he was playing Atari and driving a school bus.
1: Now, one of the big early reviews of spontaneous human combustion cases was by Paul Rolley, and it was an article in the Philosophical Transactions of London. And he looked at a few different big cases.
2: This is sounding very seventeen eighteen hundreds to me.
1: It was published in 1745. Yep. And so he... Describes one case of John Hitchell, which was from 1613, mm. and it was published in a pamphlet, Fire from Heaven, Burning the Body of One John Hitchell. Now, I was able to f- pull it up, believe it or not, <laughs> and it's, it seems like it's actually like a lightning strike Ooh. is most likely what caused that case of burning. Now, there is a, another very famous case of the Countess de Bandy Cisnate in 1731. So, one evening, having experienced a sort of drowsiness, she retired to bed. And the next morning, the maid found nothing but the remains of her body in the most hard condition. At the distance of four feet from the bed was a heap of ashes, in which could be distinguished the legs and arms untouched. Between the legs lay the head, the brain of which, together with half the posterior part of the cranium, and the whole chin and three fingers, found in a state of coal. The rest of the body was reduced to ashes, which, when touched, left on the fingers a fat, fetid moisture.
2: I just want to point out that at this point in history... There were no accurate records of the female reproductive system <laughs> because we were too scandalized by it.
1: That's a whole other episode.
2: No, but we can write about this.
1: Of course. We this can write about
2: this in fetid, fatted
1: goop. But the Reverend Joseph Bianchini was one of the first people to examine the scene. And he felt that the death was caused by a lightning strike that either traveled down the chimney or snuck through the cracks in the window.
2: So, like, basically how Santa gets in. Yes. So, lightning came in like Santa and zapped her till she made fetid goop. Science.
1: So, another case he talks about is Grace Pitt. And this was in 1744. And this was a woman that would often get up in the night to go smoke her pipe. Classic. And she was found the next day by her daughter near the fireplace and mm-hmm. a similar state to the countess Hmm. now roly does draw conclusions from this saying that the fire was caused by the entrails of the body by inflamed effluvia of her blood by juices and fermentations in the stomach by the many combustible matters which are abundant in living bodies for the use of life and finally By the fiery evaporations which exhale from the settling of the spirits of wine, brandies, and other hot liquors in the tunica velosa of the stomach and other adipose or fat membranes, with which, as chemists observe, those spirits engender a kind of camphor, which in the nighttime, in sleep, by a full breathing and respiration, are put in a stronger motion and consequently more apt to set afire. fire.
2: Well, the temperance movement is going to love this, column A, and column B, so it gets sleeping, breathing makes it worse.
1: So the sleeping and breathing, the motions of the breathing while you're sleeping, set fire all of your gas in your intestines.
2: Like rubbing two sticks together, kind of? Like, friction? Friction.
1: Yeah, and then you have all the methane... And then if you add some spirits in there too...
2: You just explode. You really explode. You were saying this like it actually happens. And oh, I, no. <laughs> okay? And I don't think it does. Oh, no. I've fallen asleep drunk way too much and never exploded.
1: You should look into that. And so this did start to become to be known as preternatural combustibility. And many people started to think that people made themselves more combustible because of alcohol. As I said, the temperance movement is going to love this. Right. But in Raleigh, he says that's just one of many factors that can just make it worse. So Pierre Emilia published the study on the combustion of the human body produced by the long and immoderate use of spiritus liquors in 1800.
2: Oh, thanks, hon.
1: He recounts numerous stories Especially ones where they are all drunkards and only consumed liquor and no other liquid, such as Madame du Boffon
2: She sounds like a sot. Let's judge her.
1: Definitely. He said, I confess that at first they appeared to me worthy of little credit, but they are presented to the public by men whose veracity seems unquestionable. Besides... Is it more surprising to experience such incineration than to void saccharine urine? That's diabetes. That's diabetes. Yeah. Yeah. He's saying it's the same. Same, same.
2: Same, same. Is it any harder to believe that people explode from drinking liquor than to believe that people can become diabetic? Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it
1: is. I know you meant that rhetorically, Pierre, (laughs) but I'm on to you. Let me answer. He also points out... That there are some specific characteristics about the people that he finds are just exploding. Exploding. <laughs> he points out that a lot that they're all women, <clears throat> all of them, <clears throat> and says, "Quote, perhaps when the cause is examined, it will appear perfectly natural. The female body is in general more delicate than that of the other sex. Mm-hmm. The system of their solids is more relaxed. Their mm. fibres are more fragile and of weaker mm. structure." And therefore, their texture is more easily hurt. Mm. Now, he goes on to say that they're also you know, lazy and, and stay inside all the time mm-hmm. and get no exercise. Mm-hmm. And their soft parts are, are very spongy. Mm. Don't look at me like that. I didn't say it. <laughs> and that since they're spongy, they can...
2: Hold more liquor?
1: Of course. Suck it up.
2: Science. Oh, contraire, Pierre. <laughs>
1: And so also, he knows that they're usually older and, and fat. Mm-hmm. So they have more spongy fat mm. to absorb. The liquor. Yeah.
2: I find his assessment of women highly insulting. Really? I do. I wouldn't I have imagined that. would love, love to see Pierre give birth. Just saying.
1: Spongy. So one thing he does say is that he feels like The alcohol is making people's bodies more combustible. But he does feel like they're ignited by some outside force.
2: So he doesn't think they're like, the fire's already there and it's just playing peekaboo when it gets all like rubbed together with their sleeping respirations?
1: No, they're primed to explode. It's like ready to light charcoal.
2: Okay. Spongy charcoal.
1: So one thing... That really brought this into the limelight Was that Charles Dickens wrote about it
2: In lots and lots of words
1: Of course And he has one of his characters An alcoholic sot Die of spontaneous combustion Now Charles Dickens even mentions a case Of spontaneous combustion in the preface To the 1853 printing of Bleak House Talking about the case of Nicole Miller, who in 1725 was found dead, burned to death, her incinerated body found in an unburned chair. Now, her husband was arrested and accused of the murder, but he was acquitted at trial when surgeon Nicholas LeCat convinced the court that Nicole Miller was a victim of spontaneous human combustion. And the final verdict proclaimed that Nicole had died, quote, by a visitation of God. No, no. <laughs> in the book, how he describes the case, it's almost like word for word for how uh, Miss Pitt is described mm. in Rawls's treatise.
2: Well, that court may have found that this woman died, Nicole Miller, due to a visitation from God. But that was not the only court that investigated cases of spontaneous human combustion. Let us turn now to the case of Monsieur Chabonnier.
1: A fateful name.
2: Chabonnier, yes. Now this is a report written up by Joe Nickel, and I want to give him credit because I love the way he constructed it. Let us now examine the case. On January 6th of 1847, an elderly Frenchman was found burned to death in his bed, Investigators believed that there might have been foul play.
1: It was the butler.
2: No, it was his son and his daughter-in-law, and they were arrested and charged with homicide. So pathologists had the body exhumed. And after examination, the same pathologist concluded that this was a case of spontaneous human combustion. According to subsequent reports, his body was in the bed in its usual position during sleep, The body was, quote, a fire with a small whitish flame, which had destroyed the clothing and the bedclothes, as well as the bedstead. Surrounding materials were scorched. It was noted that this man
1: was not very fat, nor given to
2: drunkenness.
1: And that is directly referencing... The research.
2: Monsieur. prior research. Pierre's research. He had placed a heated brick at his feet. He also carried matches in his waistcoat pocket. He went to his room between 6 and 7 p.m. Two hours later, his son passed his door and said that he noticed nothing unusual. Authorities decided that Monsieur Chabonnier had been murdered and that his body had been burned to conceal the evidence. Apparently, their suspicions were founded on nothing more than not knowing what started the fire and how severe the destruction of the body was. Now, at the time of autopsy, when the body was exhumed, the physician who conducted the autopsy... "'Dr. Masson or described. "'The coffin was half-filled. "'The body was folded in a white shroud, "'a cravat nearly destroyed by fire, "'and a fragment of shirt collar remained around the neck. "'The hands, burnt to a cinder, "'were attached to the forearm merely by some carbonized tendons, "'which gave way at the least touch. "'Lastly, the thighs were so completely separated "'that had there not been fragments of animal charcoal, "'the separation may have been attributed to a knife.' And that's from an American medical journal in 1849.
1: So Dr. Masson was like, it must be spontaneous human combustion.
2: Yes, and the defendants were acquitted.
1: Nice.
2: According to contemporary theories of the time, such as this one from Leibig in 1851, the opinion that man can burn up himself is not founded on a knowledge of the circumstances of death, but on the reverse of knowledge. On complete ignorance of all causes and conditions which preceded the accident which caused it. In short, our Dr. Nichol says, Spontaneous human combustion proponents were essentially engaging in a logical fallacy called arguing from ignorance. We don't know what caused the fire, so it must have been spontaneous human combustion.
1: So if it wasn't homicide and it wasn't spontaneous human combustion, what was it?
2: The most likely mode, according to Dr. Nickel, is accidental death. So if that is the cause of death, everyone who's ever read Coroner's Reports knows that you have to have two things. You have to have the mode and the manner of death. So the mode of death is accidental. The manner of death, we have some conjecture. He says that it's possible that he fell asleep smoking. He says it's also possible that he fell asleep and had the matches in his pocket, in his waistcoat pocket. And that the friction from him, like, rolling around, settling into bed, may have ignited the matches as they rubbed together while he tossed and turned. They were described as chemical matches, and then again as lucifer matches, which is a type of friction matches that use white
1: phosphorus. Like a flare.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. These were created in 1830. Safety matches were not developed until 1855. He also notes that the heated brick might be another source of the initial spark that caused the body to catch fire or smolder. Because a brick was heated by being placed in the flames, you'd leave it in a fire and you'd take the little tongs and lift it out and put it on a piece of linen, splash water over it, and carry it to bed. But if you set it down on the linen before you dipped it in water or threw water over it, a cinder could still be attached to the bottom and the linen would be dry. So it's possible that that caught And then he also says there was a fireplace Present in the room most likely Most bedrooms had fireplaces And it wouldn't be crazy to think That one cinder caught fire
1: Now you may say Just from a cigarette burn Or matches Catching fire if you were caught fire by that That would not cause The symptoms associated With spontaneous human combustion And you would be correct We'll get there Hold your horses
2: Now Before we go to those horses, let's leave them. Let them whinny. Dr. Nickel includes a note here that I think is fabulous. He says that Flint, who wrote about this in 1849, and presumably his source, give the name only as C.H. blank. But
1: Arnold, he's
2: back.
1: I got this. Charbonnet is French for burning charcoal.
2: Yeah, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. Larry Arnold just made up a name was clever about it good for you larry arnold good for you so there's another mysterious case much more recent that was very fascinating to me because it in the initial reports i read seemed to have a witness to the human explosion. crazy so this is the first report i read 1956 honolulu-based 78 year old young sick kim was burnt to death after blue flame bursting out of his stomach The incident was witnessed by a neighbor who could do nothing to save the old man from getting burnt to death. That sounds very nefarious. That's crazy. A blue flame just shot out of his stomach and then he exploded. Yeah, okay. Hold your horses again. I found a newspaper article. The headline is, Source of fire still uncertain in death of aged Korean invalid. Which, by the way, cultural sensitivity in 1956 was tops. It was a big wide world when young Sick Kim- traveled from korea to hawaii when he was 26 for nearly half a century afterward while men were cutting the globe down to size hawaii was kim's busy personal world some six years ago his world shrank abruptly into the confines of a tiny slice of honolulu's chinatown it centered in two small rooms the second floor of a walk-up hotel Kim and his wife operated in Lum Yip Key building. Helpless as the result of a stroke, he spent most of the long hours sitting in his wheelchair or a big overstuffed chair, watching the small stream of life flowing past the street below. There was not much to watch. Sometimes when he was too tired to sit at the window, he would see other snatches of that outside world through the television set in the room. A practical nurse came up once a week to bathe and otherwise care for him but the hours were still long and full of empty minutes. Smoking was one of the few pleasures that Kim could have enjoyed unassisted. He could move his arm sufficiently to handle a lit cigarette. It may have been this pleasure that put a fiery end to young, sick Kim shortly before noon yesterday while his wife was absent doing washing, though there were conflicting reports as to whether or not he still smoked. Detective Donald Ho, who is investigating the fire in which Kim died, said its origin has not yet been determined. Kim himself was beyond help or caring by the time Miss Tagata rushed into his room to investigate the source of smoke pouring from the hallway. Where's the blue flame? Blue flame stomach? Not so much. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I think that one has had a major case of telephone.
1: So through all of these cases, including, you know, the Mary Reeser case we talked about, people are trying to figure out what caused
2: blue flames to shoot from their stomachs before they exploded in front of witnesses.
1: Right. You know, Larry Arnold's got all these crazy ideas. People say it could be a buildup of static electricity, external geomagnetic forces. But people do like to point out that some objects can spontaneously burst into flames, such as the pile of oily rags stored together in an open container. When oxygen from the air hits the rags, it can slowly raise the internal temperature high enough to ignite the flammable oil. Now also piles of like hay or decomposing material can spontaneously combust, related to heat being created by the bacteria fermenting.
2: Okay, so if a compost heap can spontaneously combust, why not the entrails of an alcoholic?
1: Same thing. Now one thing that people like to point out is that the heat required to completely bring someone down to ashes is a lot higher then what would cause the damage to the room. It would completely destroy the house. Right. So Lair notes in his paper that it would require two full cartloads of faggots to consume a body, as with a baker's boy, Rayaud, being condemned to be burnt a few years ago at Cain. At the end of 10 hours, some remains of his bones were still to be seen.
2: I just want to point out that a faggot is a bundle of sticks, and you need to stop whatever cannibalism thing you have going on in your head.
1: And it's also known that in a crematorium, you need high temperatures around 1,300 degrees or higher to reduce the body to ash in a short period of time.
2: I I think that in a short period of time part is key. It is. Okay, so it takes a massive amount of heat to completely reduce the human body to ashes you can take home in your Chinese takeout container. Which, by the way, if you don't know, if you don't buy an urn... The container they give you to take ashes home in looks like a Chinese takeout container. And that's why my brother-in-law's uncle's ashes got thrown away. Anyway, maid was fired. True story. You're <laughs> making faces at me. So, takes lots and lots and lots of heat. Can the human body make more heat than naturally exists? Like, is there anything other than consuming alcohol and being spongy that makes your temperature go up? Like, is there any reason to believe that that is a thing that exists in the world?
1: Well, Larry Arnold did mention this Eastern practice.
2: Oh, he mentioned kundalini.
1: Right. And so, there is an Eastern practice called dumo. It's a Tibetan word for inner fire. And so, it's sad that these monks can go into a kind of meditative state and they can raise their body temperatures to become hot to the touch. And even if you wrap wet blankets around them, steam will come off.
2: Oh, yeah. The snow melts. I've heard about this. snow melts, exactly. Yeah. Like if they're sitting in snow meditating, it makes a little spot around them. It's really interesting. It is. And it's been studied by, like, not Larry Arnold.
1: Right. Like real scientists. (laughs)
2: We're having way too much fun making fun of this man.
1: So, scientists have looked at this on several different occasions. There's a classic study from the 80s, but it was redone in the last few years with a little better record keeping. And they looked at this type of meditation to determine if it really could raise human body temperature. So, they went out to these remote monasteries in eastern Tibet to find out. Can I sign up for this research project? Right. I want to go. So there are two different big components to this process. There's a somatic component and a neurocognitive component. So somatic meaning like you're at your body, like your physical body. And so that involves this special breathing technique.
2: Like when you're sleeping?
1: Kind of. <laughs> no, not really. And so it's called the vase. And it involves these isometric muscle contractions. Of the pelvis. So isometric meaning you're not using those muscles to move anything. So if you just flex a muscle, that's an isometric contraction.
2: Oh my God, like those belts you could order. The infomercial used to come on after Arthur C. Clarke.
1: Yes. <laughs>
2: you could sit on your couch and work out.
1: That's why you have a six pack? <laughs>
2: that's so I have a six pack. I don't have a six pack. I can't even get it out.
1: Now there's also the neurocognitive component Where they meditate and visualize mental images of flames at specific locations in the body, accompanied by these intense sensations of body heat in the spine.
2: But does it work? Like, that's how it works. But does it work? Yes.
1: What?
2: They know the secrets of life in Tibet, I swear.
1: (laughs) So they begin by doing different breathing techniques, forceful breathing and gentle breathing, along with these isometric contractions. So the forceful breathing meditation, along with the vase contractions, is used to increase the body heat. And then they begin a gentle breathing technique that, along with the meditation, is used to maintain that body heat. Now, doing these studies, they used EEGs, looking at brain waves, and they also got core body temperature. So they were able to note whenever the brain activity changed. And they were also able to see the body temperature change as well. So they were able to raise core temperature by one degree Celsius with a maximum of 2.2 degrees Celsius. So that puts you in a fever range. Hmm. That's a core body temperature. They could increase their peripheral body temperature Of how, like, your hands feel by up to 6.8 degrees Celsius. That's Celsius.
2: That's insane. So,
1: they really could touch snow and make steam come off with their hand being that warm.
2: There are superpowers in Tibet.
1: (laughs) Well, so it's related to a buildup of that, you know, that kind of energy and heat from the very, very, very well trained isometric muscle contractions but also there is the neurocognitive component and they're able to relax and and vasodilate and open up the blood vessels
2: so is the visualization necessary to have increases of that amount yes so if you're just doing the techniques it's not going to have as profound an effect
1: it will work but it will not maintain the temperature
2: that is so incredibly fascinating
1: Human body's a mystery.
2: See, science can be awesome and mysterious and cool. You don't have to make it up. You don't have to blow shit up. Although science
1: does that too. (laughs) Okay, so the body can produce this increased heat through a special meditative technique. But obviously increasing your body temperature by a few degrees Celsius is not going to make you catch fire. Why not? Because it won't.
2: Okay, fine.
1: Now another thing that's been proposed for centuries is a lightning strike. Yes, Santa lightning. We discussed this. So that may sound crazy.
2: (laughs) It does. It actually does sound crazy.
1: Lightning strikes are this just a really pretty crazy phenomenon.
2: We take them for granted, I think.
1: You know, we have up to eight million lightning flashes per day on the planet. Something's bound to go wrong eventually, right? In the United States, lightning strikes cause approximately three hundred accidents and hundred deaths per year. Now, there's this one case. A 50- there's always this one case. It's this 53-year-old man, and he was working alone in his cottage. And family could not get in touch with him, and eventually they called the police. And the police came in, and they found his body lying on the floor. Now, there's no signs of fire in the room. His tools are scattered about, and he's rigid with burns, mostly in his abdominal region. But they also find burns on his left foot and his right thumb. I feel like this is a riddle. I feel like I'm supposed to draw some conclusion from this. You should. So, have you ever played with one of those little balls? What? Let me finish. (laughs) What? Those little balls where, you know, you can hold one end and your partner holds the other and you hold hands and it lights up because the electrical current passes through you. Yeah,
2: yeah, 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 yeah.
1: So, it's the same thing. If electricity comes in somewhere, it has to come out somewhere.
2: So, you're a conductor course like a train conductor like an engineer no. like a bus driver no okay
1: no logical fallacy
2: <laughs> so larry arnold was right plants plants burn no, therefore Logiston. no, well, no. no. <laughs> too much bad science
1: so they also determined that the death was caused by his heart stopping either it went to asystole, it stopped beating or it went into v-field like it beat too fast okay and
2: so I feel like you're leading me to believe that he was struck by lightning, but you're also leading me to believe that he was in a closed room. You've got a classic closed room mystery here. Is he yes. ash he's not ashes though. No. But he is he does have burns. Yes. Okay. So he's in a closed room. It looks like he was struck by lightning. So he was struck by lightning outside. Someone moved his body inside. Why
1: why? No, murder girl. I'm sorry. So the cottage turned out to have metal beams. And he was working between two metal sawhorses. So Lightning struck the cottage, went through the beams, and created an arc over the spot he was working, electrocuting him.
2: What had he done?
1: <laughs> well, there's another case of a 46-year-old man who died inside his kitchen due to an electrical discharge conducted through his chimney, whose external portion was struck by Lightning. So maybe the idea that the Countess was struck through magic lightning through a chimney...
2: Is not so silly. It's not. I'm sorry, I m- I mocked him. So, as I said, he was not ashes. He just had burns. So that does not seem like what is making these people disappear and look like the Wicked Witch of the West. East. Wicked Witch of the East, excuse me. Let me get my facts straight.
1: You're right. So lightning... Does not cause spontaneous combustion. Duma does not cause spontaneous combustion. Fire lines and geomagnet whatever.
2: No. No. no.
1: No. But there is something that does. And so let's look back at the Mary Reeser case that okay. we started with.
2: Okay. I remember her. She was in her home and it was in Florida in the fifties and she was last seen in her chair smoking a cigarette. There was smoke coming out of her door and the doorknob was hot but nothing in the room was disturbed. Except the circle around her and then some fire damage up high. Right.
1: So, the FBI actually investigated this case. Who was on the case, boys? Don't you worry. So they looked at some of the evidence. They determined that the greasy substance that was found was human fat. Ew. They looked for gasoline and other accelerants and they couldn't find any. well mm-hmm. they also stated that At this stage of a burn, you wouldn't be able to find any.
2: Half of knowing what you know is knowing what you don't know. You know what I'm saying? I don't. That's right. (laughs) You get it.
1: So some of the other evidence that was found by the FBI was that she did tell her son that she had taken two sedatives at 8 p.m. and had planned to take two more. Damn, Mary. Proud Mary keep on burning. Now, she was wearing a rayon acetate nightgown. Burning. And, of course, she was smoking a cigarette. Burning. So the FBI wrote, It was formally believed that such cases arose from spontaneous combustion or was attributed to preternatural causes. There is, however, absolutely no evidence from any of the cases on record to show that burning of this nature occurs other than when the body is ignited by some external means. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Well, it's like you would need some small object that was on fire to fall on you. And I mean, where are we going to find a small object that's on fire in this...
1: Like a cigarette?
2: Like, yeah, like a cigarette that she was smoking when her son last saw her.
1: But that doesn't explain everything. Because if you were just to catch fire, it would not cause this. It would not cause this small area to be burned.
2: Right, it would burn the house down.
1: Exactly. And that's why it's not this easy open and shut case. It's how you differentiate spontaneous combustion from cases of people just catching themselves on fire. Which right. happens.
2: Right. In the case where you just catch on fire, you're running out of the house like a bunch of salamanders.
1: So the other odd damage that's noted in the case is that the heat damage is only above the four foot level.
2: Right. Small gypsy woman.
1: Or. That heat rises.
2: That sounds like science.
1: Yeah. So if you had a smoldering body and heat was liberated from it, you would have this layer of hot air created that would only damage the upper part of the room.
2: Okay. Why? Like if you make a fire, like in a fire pit or just, you know, a stack of logs, it's like the whole area burns. It's It doesn't make sense for it not to spread, I guess.
1: Well, so it's something called the wick effect. Okay. Okay. And so the best way to think of this is it's like an inside out candle. So the candle you have wax, the fatty acid, and you have a wick
2: which is inside. This is more like like in my mind it looks like a sushi roll with like the wax cylinder in the middle and then you've like rolled it in wicks all along the outside.
1: Well so the human body's fat acts as the the wax. Wax. Okay. And the like clothing our hair may act as the wick. And now you have to have some sort of heat source, such as a smoldering ember or a cigarette. And so while unconscious, the victim's clothing is ignited somehow. So a lot of times they have people that are very inebriated.
2: Right. Have just
1: taken a lot of sedatives.
2: Oh, and then like Young Sick Kim was an invalid.
1: Right. They can't move.
2: My other theory... Is that maybe they're dead already?
1: That is an option. That's a possibility. Because it's a lot of old people it too, is. and so they could have had a heart attack or something, and or stroke. Move. Yeah. So over several hours, heat from flames melts the body fat, and that soaks into the clothing. Now the clothing burns steadily like wax, and the candle. This after is the a... fat
2: saturates into it, you mean?
1: So this. Is a smoldering fire. It does not reach this super intense heat like it's needed for cremation.
2: Let's pause there because, like, one thing you said about cremation earlier that I thought was interesting is that, you know, this is the heat required to burn a body in a short period of time. Right. So, to me, that's like, excuse me here, but that is like a flash fry versus this, which is like a crock pot. If you cook something down in a crock pot or a Dutch oven over hours and hours, you know that it falls apart. Like, that's just what happens to it.
1: Well, Once so this is a smoldering fire, it doesn't have to reach such intense heat. Because it burns for longer. Right. And steadily. Mm-hmm. And it also produces that layer of hot air up at the top of the building. And now, of course, you do get some heat off the body, and that's why you get those little kind of circles of scorched Area. Mm-hmm. But you don't even always get that. Depending on the exact circumstances.
2: Okay, so why do we get the Wicked Witch of the East feet?
1: Oh, why are the feet left or yes, the fingers yes. left? Well, so where's all of your fat in your body?
2: Oh, mine's everywhere, baby.
1: <laughs> in general.
2: <laughs> your belly. Right. Your Your abdomen. Abdomen. Your torso. Or
1: pelvis, yeah. Yeah, you know, depending on what kind of body shape you have. But
2: And they're all beautiful.
1: They're all beautiful. It's true. Some are just more prone to being burning. spongy and yeah. burning.
2: Are we back to that, Pierre, spongy.
1: really? Mm-hmm. Spongy. I got plenty of sponge. <laughs> <laughs> but so those spongy you no, know, those fatty areas are the ones that are gonna burn the most. And that's why something like your foot, which no matter how like fat you are, you could just have tons and tons of fat. Your foot still does not have a lot of fat on it. Your fingers, your hands are not going to have that much fat on them. Mm-hmm. They're not going to burn in the same way.
2: okay, so that explains what's left behind, and you've told me that heat rises, and I get that. but why is it why does it have such a clear directional burn? I guess, like why is it so concentrated
1: in a column? Well, it creates a temperature gradient, okay, so there's an easy way to think about that and you could think of like holding a torch.
2: Okay, not like a flashlight. We're not in England. No. Stop it. Stop it.
1: It's a flashlight. <laughs> so we're holding we're holding a torch, an actual torch like the Olympic torch. And while you may feel a little bit of heat on your hand from it. I do. Right? Do you feel it everybody? It's not burning.
2: My hand is not on fire.
1: It should not be if you it is if you're doing, doing it wrong,
2: wrong. You had one job.
1: That's because the heat moves in one direction. And you can also think of it like a match. If you light a match, you can hold it up, and many times it goes out before it reaches your fingertips.
2: So the end of the match is the feet. Yes. It all makes sense. Very science
1: And then you have the greasy stains.
2: It's melted, people. It's the melted fat.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. gross. And so, you know, it's a misconception to think that you need these really high temperatures because you can produce this local high temperature by using the wick effect and this smoldering flame. And at something like 500 degrees Celsius, with enough time, bone will turn to ash.
2: In that paper you were citing earlier, they were saying that clearly you need at least 1,300 degrees Celsius to burn a body to get rid of the bones. Quickly quickly. That, I think that's key. That's what they use for like cremation. Cuz nobody wants to sit around and watch their loved ones stew in a crock pot for 7 hours. But this is just a different method of burning. Now, this is an interesting theory, but have there been like clinical tests that have reproduced the results?
1: Oh yeah, there's several studies. And I'm going to post the video on the website where they did it with a pig and you can watch it happen. They wrapped <laughs> the pig in the blanket. They no. put they literally put a cigarette on it. And it catches fire, and over several hours, the torso is melted, leaving the extremities non burned.
2: Okay, so everybody, you want to watch a pig get roasted the old-fashioned way, (laughs) check out our page.
1: And so, most likely, Mary Reeser was heavily sedated. She was wearing a very flammable rayon acetate gown, and she was smoking a cigarette, which most likely... Caught her gown on fire
2: and she was just passed out and didn't wake up when she, excuse me, I don't mean to get political, but felt the burn. Yes, okay, proud Mary, keep on burning, burning. So, is this still happening like in every retirement center in Florida?
1: We don't see as many cases as we used to.
2: Oh, it since well, are we due? Has it been 32 years yet?
1: It is. Oh no, it was in the 80s, the last big swath of spontaneous combustion cases occurred. So I have a theory, this is my own personal theory, over why that has dropped so much. And that's because there's been a change in how cigarettes have been made in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. So cigarettes used to be made to where you, if you did drop it, it would continue to burn. And this caused many fires and accidents in deaths. In 1981, there was, oddly enough, 1,980 deaths related to smoking. And that's not lung cancer.
2: While smoking.
1: Right. It's like a dropped cigarette. Catching you on fire, catching something on fire, catching okay. the house on fire. Often people, you know, would fall asleep smoking cigarettes. And so so it was determined that that they could create a safer cigarette, not from a health standpoint, from a burning standpoint, and make it to where it would go out if you dropped it, if you fell asleep. And... Lots of campaigning, laws were passed, but now most states and most cigarettes are safe, quote, cigarettes mm-hmm. that will go out if you leave them burning instead of catching you on fire. And so this caused the drop in smoking-related deaths down to 490 in 2011. So that is a quarter of what it was in 1980. We'll take it. So some of that is related to the cigarettes that go out. I hate calling them safer cigarettes. And also related to changes in fire retardant clothing.
2: Right. You, If you buy material, like if you go to the store I sew, and you go to buy clothing, material for clothing for kids, it will explicitly say, like, do not use for sleepwear, not fire retardant. Like on the bolts of material that is such a thing.
1: Right, because there are laws that say that kids' sleep clothing have to be fire retardant.
2: Good laws like it.
1: Oh. Well, if you look at the chemicals used, it may not be. There's an excellent documentary on it, (laughs) but that's for another day. So while we can conjecture on what happened to Miss Reeser, the uh, bone detective anthropologist, Korgman, who we mentioned earlier, said just what did happen on the night of July 1st, 1951, in St. Petersburg, Florida. We may never know, though the case still haunts me. The cinder lady, as she became known, is now part of our folklore. It couldn't happen, but it did. And it's interesting to see that throughout folklore and history for centuries and centuries, people have that idea of being consumed by fire and the powers of fire. Have been ever-present.
2: And I think in some cases, we've used the idea of that haunting image to say more than we can when no one's listening. And throughout my research on spontaneous human combustion, all I could think about was self-immolation.
1: And so that's when people intentionally set themselves on fire.
2: It's actually a misnomer. Yeah. It's almost like self-annihilation. It's... Could be primarily associated with death by fire but that's happened over time as that's become the most recognizable form of it it's done in protest it used to just be self-destructive like one of the older forms was disemboweling it was done oneself yes holy cow it's you know the
1: um oh the japanese
2: yes there you go that was a major practice there but self-immolation by fire as we think of it today, actually has its own very long and unique history. And this is from an article in the New Yorker by James Verini. He says that contrary to common belief, the practice does not originate in the Vietnam era and is not confined to Asia. It's a millennia old practice in both the West and the East, where it has long commanded mass sympathy and outrage unmatched by other forms of suicide. The sociologist, Emil Durkheim separated suicides into four types the egoistic the altruistic the anomic and the fatalistic perhaps self-immolation captivates so thoroughly because it wins on all counts it is the ultimate act of both despair and defiance a symbol at once of resignation and heroic self-sacrifice
1: all right i see what he's saying because when i hear self-immolation the immediate thing i think of are the buddhist monks setting themselves on fire around the vietnam war
2: but it's much much older than that. So there are records of it or mentions of it as far back as like Greco-Roman mythology. Heracles supposedly did it because of losing his mind. Dido did it because of pride and despair. Croesus did it after being defeated by the Persians. And there was a very interesting episode around 300 AD. Christians persecuted by Diocletian. We just talked about it. We that. know that guy. Sweet guy. Good guy. Sweet guy. But they set fire to his palace in Nicodemia and threw themselves on it. Presumably they were trying to express their rejection or objection to the Roman policies. And there was also an episode in Byzantium where a group of heretics known as Metonist took up the practice, gathering in churches and setting them on fire while inside in protest of changes to their liturgy. Now, interestingly. This was also quite the thing in Russia for a moment. Two moments. Separate moments. In the 17th century, followers of the ascetic capitam were furious over government-ordered reforms to the Orthodox Church. They saw the Tsar as the embodiment of guests. Just... Oh, well,
1: he's the Antichrist. Clearly. Everyone's the Antichrist. Yes.
2: Well, this is Peter the Great. He actually was, oh, he he was, was, he was yeah, on yeah. our suspect list. <laughs> and they were angry because he was trying to affect their worship. And he, they thought that he was trying to insulate himself in a seat of power that would eventually culminate, you know, with the end times and things. So they didn't take too kindly. And so they had to submit themselves, quote, to a second baptism, this time by fire. So in the 1680s and 90s, thousands, estimates go up to around 20,000 of the Capitanist, lock themselves in churches and burn them down.
1: That's a way to make a statement.
2: Now, this practice was revived in 1855 through 1875 when the Shoshigatali, or self-burners, who were devout Russian Orthodox, decided that death by fire was, quote, the only means of purification for the sins and pollution of the world. So between 1855 and 1875, groups ranging from 15 to 100 in number started throwing themselves in large pits or dry buildings filled with brushwood. And lighting themselves on fire. And it was reported that by the year 1867, no less than 1,700 are reported to have voluntarily chosen death by fire near Tumen in the Eastern Ural Mountains. Now, there is a long heritage and history of this practice in Eastern culture that may have a direct tie to the current incarnation of self immolation that we see today in Tibet. And this practice started in China. Where beginning in the 4th century AD, Buddhist monks would sit on pyres to propitiate Ganying, the force that binds the corporeal to the ethereal. They were dissolving that boundary by willingly going and sitting on their funeral pyres when they felt that their bodies had become exhausted. This is more like euthanasia than protest.
1: They're not trying to make a statement by doing this.
2: They're facilitating the end of life. One monk... Deodou said, I have been weary of this physical frame for many a long day. He said this while melting to death atop a fire. They would swallow incense chips beforehand, and people thought it might have been done to improve the odor of the burnings. And so these self-burnings became public performances. Officials attended, crowds wept in admiration. As the orders took on political power, so did self-immolation. Monks burn themselves to protest declining patronage of the ruling classes and lament invasions. As the King dynasty disintegrated on the eve of the first world war, there was a wave of self-immolations and protests and decline of, well, of the world, it seemed. This writer's fabulous.
1: When you talk about funeral pyres, I think of the old Indian tradition.
2: The Sati. They, this actually comes from Sati, who was one of the wives of the Hindu god Shiva, And according to myth, she married against her father's wishes and then burned herself to death after her father insulted her husband. And this is linked to the practice of Sati, which is a custom where wives will throw themselves on their husband's funeral pyre. I love you, but I would never do that for you.
1: I'm okay with that.
2: Good. Because it was outlawed in 1829, so I would be a felon.
1: But you do still see cases of it on occasion.
2: Just because it's illegal doesn't mean people don't do it. I don't know if anyone knows that, but it's true.
1: But what about Quang Duc? This is the Pulitzer Prize winning photo. This is something that is an iconic image of the 60s and of the war in Vietnam.
2: This is often referred to as the first modern incident. And this was in 1963 in South Vietnam. And Buddhist monks were protesting the oppressive Catholic regime of Diem which we spoke about in our FDR conspiracy episode. we talked about how we got into Vietnam. And if you'll remember, if you'll remember, America kind of sponsored a coup in South Vietnam. We allowed it to happen. We were very okay. And a lot of people speculate that John F. Kennedy reacted to this image when he made that decision. And this is an image of a man in traditional Tibetan garb, sitting cross legged in the lotus position on fire. You know it from the rage against the machine cover. But the Buddhist religion was very discriminated against by this Catholic regime under Diem in South Vietnam at the time, and they felt very oppressed and they wanted to call attention to their plight. And so he doused himself in gasoline and went and sat down in the middle of a street in Saigon and a journalist named David Halberstam wrote about the incident. Flames were coming from a human being. His body was slowly withering and shriveling up, his head blackening and charring. In the air was the smell of burning flesh. Behind me, I could hear the sobbing of the Vietnamese who were now gathering. I was too shocked to cry, too confused to take notes or ask questions, too bewildered even to think. After that, four more nuns and monks self-immolated. That same year, and this took place in June. But the DM regime did fall that year. However, throughout the United States' involvement in Vietnam, the self-immolations continued. In one week, there were 13. So there was a lot of self-immolating happening in the Vietnam era. Interestingly enough, it was not confined to Asia. There was a pretty famous American case.
1: Really? I'd, I've never heard of this.
2: I hadn't either. Right outside the Pentagon office of Robert McNamara, Norman Morrison, who is a Quaker
1: famous for being conscientious objectors and pacifists.
2: Yes. Well he burned himself to death while holding on to his child to mark oh, his God. as a mark of rejection for the Vietnam War. His child did survive, and Morrison became a hero in Vietnam. He was even Really put on a postage stamp, which I find very fascinating. So this sort of became a shorthand for resistance this became like the ultimate emblem of nonviolent protest if you can call it nonviolent which is a huge it's a huge controversy yeah. in the buddhist faith because it is a violent act but they cite episodes where you know like buddha comes upon a tiger who's starving with tiger cubs and he disembowels himself and lets them feed on his body
1: like the rabbit
2: and so you know if you're doing it for a good cause and you're not hurting anyone for it yourself it would seem that it's okay this very gray area, but it continued to happen in various parts of the world. For example, Czechoslovaks did it in protest of the Soviet invasion in 1968. Five Indian students did it in protest of job quotas in 1990. A Tibetan monk did it in protest of the Indian police stopping an anti-Chinese hunger strike in 1998. Kurds did it to protest Turkey in 1999. Falun Gong practitioners did it in Tiananmen Square in 2009. And a Tunisian man, Mohamed Bouazizi, did it in 2010. And that kind of started the Arab Spring. After he self-immolated when his vegetable cart was taken by some government officials who were essentially just messing with him, and he realized that he was not going to be able to bring home food that day, this man with a college education who should have had great job prospects lit himself on fire in public, and it set off this massive movement.
1: So why are people doing this? Why are people choosing self-immolation out of all the things they could do to protest?
2: Well, Neil Conan from NPR interviewed Michael Biggs, who's an Oxford sociologist, in 2013. And he asked that question. He said, why do people do this? And Biggs said, one motivation is to show a distant audience, an audience far away that doesn't understand your situation, just how badly your group is or how your group of people is suffering.
1: So that's like what Quang Duck was doing. He was trying to get this in the papers,
2: right? Get he the specifically U.S.
1: to pay attention.
2: Wanted the U.S. to see. It also has kind of a cultural resonance in some cultures in the way that fire is purifying. So for us, I think in the tr- Christian tradition of the Western tradition, fire is often horrifying, but of course in Buddhist or Hindu traditions, fire has a much more positive resonance of something that's purifying and holy. And he does go on to say that many of these images are not seen in China.
1: Right, because it's communist-controlled media.
2: Right. He says, China can censor at least the majority of the Han, the local majority population, the Han Chinese, from seeing these. And even if they did see them, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that, I mean, Chinese nationalism is very strong. And so I'm not sure they would garner such great sympathy. But, of course, that's speculative. In the same interview, Conan also spoke to Robert Burnett, who is the head of the Modern Tibet Studies program at Columbia University. And he asked him why there's been such an uptick of incidents in the last few years. And he explains that in 1998, Chinese government banned photographs of the Dalai Lama and quietly banned worship of him, which is kind of a big deal. So after Mao died, People had been permitted to practice religion to a considerable extent.
1: There's actually like a, a story on NPR I listened to a few days ago. They were talking about this, and they have to be very strict about what they call it, and they have to call it culture,
2: not religion.
1: They're practicing their culture.
2: Hmm. <laughs> so interesting. But this seemed like a very targeted and specific change, and it was. Also, around this time, the Tibetan language began to be slowly withdrawn from schools, and there were stricter enforcements and restrictions placed around travel and information within that region.
1: So, is this like self immolation just like a tie to that culture, just saying like we're not going to stand for it?
2: Right, it's a way to express the integral nature of cultural practice with self-identity it shows the commitment barnett says it just makes huge sense within the terms of traditional buddhism the idea of self-sacrifice for a noble cause that's very strong in buddhism and the idea that there is something here that's been threatened the culture the language the religion the nation
1: so that's how the tibetan buddhists feel about it how are the chinese trying to like reframe this
2: well Buxeng Tirsig, who's a vice president of special programs at the International Campaign for Tibet, said, Part of me actually feels, by the way the Chinese authorities are dealing with self-immolation, that they want the Tibetan people to turn more violent, take a violent turn, so that then they can blame the Tibetans easily as terrorists and clamp down more heavily. That's what they're aiming at, I think. And a writer from Washington, D.C., Timothy Dickinson, says, Fire is the most dreaded of all forms of death. So the sight of someone setting themselves on fire is simultaneously an assertion of intolerability and, frankly, moral superiority. You say, I would never have the guts to do that. It's not that he's trying to tell me something, but he's commanding me. This isn't insanity. It's a terrible act of reason. So we've referred to the fact that this is happening in Tibet, but it's happening at a staggering rate. Since March 2009, 140 people have self-immolated in protest of Chinese occupation of Tibet peaked in 2012 when 80 self-immolations took place, but they are quote, the free Tibet website, still a feature of Tibetan resistance. Though many monks and nuns have self-immolated, there are also teachers, students, herdsmen, mothers, and fathers. The youngest to self-immolate was 15 years old.
1: So, I mean, what is the Chinese government doing with this? Obviously, they're restricting images coming out, so they want to reframe this as these are just terrorists.
2: They say that they're part of the Dalai Lama clique and that they're dissonance, and they've done things like, for example, installing fire extinguishers all around Tiananmen Square.
1: That is passive-aggressive.
2: <laughs> so, self-immolators who survived the protest have been detained, and their whereabouts and condition are mostly still unknown. Anyone considered to be abetting or encouraging self-immolation or accused of sharing information about self-immolation abroad can be subject to a deferred death sentence, which usually means life in prison. The bodies of self-immolation protesters are quickly cremated by the authorities in order to prevent the families from holding traditional funerals or sky burials. Communities are threatened with punishment for offering prayer services or support to any of the self-immolator's families. Government benefits are also withheld from the families of self-immolation protesters. Like I said, it's still happening. It's still happening very frequently. And at the time of recording, the uh, most recent incident of self-immolation in Tibet occurred on April 15, 2017. A currently unnamed monk set himself afire on a busy street in the Kardze County. Authorities arrived quickly and put out the flames with fire extinguishers and the body was taken away. The internet in the surrounding area has been heavily restricted and surveillance stepped up. And just so there's no ambiguity about it, some protesters do take the time to leave very specific messages. For example, Sonam Topgyo, a 27-year-old monk who self-immolated in July of 2015, left a letter. Chinese authorities repress Tibetans with their violent and brutal law by demolishing our religion, tradition, and culture, and causing environmental devastation. Meanwhile, people absolutely have no freedom of expression, nor can they convey their grievances. And Ter a young monk who self-immolated in 2013, told his companions as he was dying on the way to the hospital, Today I self-immolated for the reunion of Tibetans inside and outside Tibet. My only wish for you is to be united and to work for the preservation of the Tibetan language and tradition. If we do these things, Tibetans will be reunited. The importance of culture, identity, self, community. I think we take those things for granted. We have to remember they're not just stories.
1: No, they're not just stories.
0: Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.